Is this for credits? The NZATE podcast. Welcome along to our third episode of the NZATE podcast. Is this for credits? Hey, Philly, how you doing? Hello, I'm well. I'm so good. I've had such an amazing day, Christopher. Are you a Christopher? I am. You're a Christopher. I'm a Philippa. I've dedicated my entire day to the types of things that I used to judge myself for, for being totally neurotic. But now I'm going to call it mindful. And I've just been arranging things at my home at 90 degree angles and leaf blowing and just making everything perfect, rearranging my pantry and the toolkit. Oh my gosh. Threw out so many screws. How many... (laughs) How many screws do you need to throw out? It's been just such a beautiful day of just tinkering around, getting ready to actually start work tomorrow without actually doing any schoolwork. There's plenty of ways to look at that, isn't there? I love the concept of you do you. It's cool at this mm. age to start embracing ourselves, isn't it? And just, <laughs> yeah, this is me. Totally. This is how I yeah, operate. Yeah. I think so much about that and I'm going to celebrate that and lean into that part of myself. And it bega- began because I was looking for a bolt to hang a chair on. I'm quite DIY, Chris. And then I was like, well, I can't find the bolt unless I clean the drawer, and I can't clean the drawer unless I clean the pantry, and I can't clean the pantry until I clean the toolkit. So It's really no different to an internet rabbit hole, is it? One thing leads mm. to the next, and before you know it, you're um, knocking out a wall. <laughs> knocked out a wall and lined up all your screws. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it sounds like a summer well spent to me. (laughs) Ah, yes, yes, indeed. So in this this episode, we've got a conversation with Owen Marshall, which we haven't heard yet, and I'm really looking forward to another of our colleagues from the NZATE PIP is having that conversation. So that's going to be part of our podcast. But you and I were also talking about a subject, because it's in our minds in relation to our planning this year, about how to approach or what are really interesting and um, important considerations when approaching written text where where that text may not lead to a, an end-of-year exam and assessment, where it's just part of the course. Where's your thinking got to on that? Our Year 11 program this year is so different. As a reminder, I'm at Albany Senior High School, which I think is perceived as being a really progressive and innovative, although I hate that word, secondary school. And this year we've taken an approach to year 11 where we're ditching the year 11 certificate and we're looking at at developing the skills that lean into level two NCEA more. So we're, we're certainly doing the level one credits that count and we're focusing on numeracy and literacy of course but we're looking more towards like a a, a deeper learning pathway towards level two and what that means in English is that we're reducing our program from an 18 credit almost internal program to because external exams for us have never been the be all and end all it's been we've always had more of an internally focused program but we're changing that to now go from 18 or to 22 credits down to now only nine credits maximum and having only two assessment events and having those assessment events being combined assessment events uh, in preparation for the new standards that are coming in in 2024 now and we're dropping the external. And because of that, it's like, well, what are the opportunities now for us to teach text, being that we don't have unfamiliar text and we don't have the written text 
criteria kind of hanging over us. And I've been thinking a lot about what Chris Teese was saying in the last episode about just enjoying text and celebrating language. And when he's writing, he doesn't necessarily have an idea of exactly what sense he's making. But the way that he was thinking made me think perhaps the way that I'm teaching text is overcomplicating a text. And perhaps if I lost some of that purpose, audience, intention, language feature, technique, example, meaning, effect, if I lost some of that jargon, there'd actually be much more room for that text to breathe and for students to have more authentic, authentic engagement with it. How do you think that that might look? Well, the best teaching of poetry, um, can you, I don't know if you can hear my dog growling underneath me, clear off butcher. When I've taught poetry the best, I have taught it and we've looked at a short text, we've looked at a poem, we've eliminated the language that has been problematic and then we've looked at the language that remains as a class and that's been like a whole class exercise being like, let's just get rid of the stuff that spooks us. And so it's like, let's just look at it. Let's look at it, listen to it, explore it, then see where we are triggered emotionally, good or bad. See where that where the, the feelings are, are really coming to the surface. Look at that stanza, then identify the word that is making that meaning for us, and then see whether or not that word sits within the context of a broader language feature that we can identify. And if not, let's look at what that word is on its own, if it's a noun or if it's a motive or if, if it's a present tense verb. And let's talk at the f- of the function of, of that. But it's starting really, really broad and starting with, with the emotional experience of text after eliminating all of the, the baggage and then finally getting to a point where there's a, 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 the light bulb of like, holy moly or holy other swear words. Mm. I can't believe that that was actually just the definite article. That's all that that was mm. that was making me feel the way that I did. So that's what I've done in the past. How successful do you feel you are at getting them to form some form of emotional response to the poem? I think I, think I sometimes find I encounter a lot of uh, resistance, not um, not aggressive resistance, just fearfulness or confusion around the notion of having an emotional response to a poem from students? Yeah, I think I've tricked kids in the past mm. by by choosing poetry that they've never heard of or a name yeah. they've never seen or being like, hey, we're looking at this awesome chick or this dude, you know, or this listening to the song, and that's been quite effective. How have you found that in a co-ed versus a single sex, like all boys environment. I'm spending a bit of time examining my own kind of gendered perception of my classroom. And so I think what... Even that question is really, really gendered. You know, that's why I'm sort of staggering through it. Like Quite happy to answer it because I have a gendered response, which I've kind of maintained for many years, which is possibly worth us interrogating. But I have perceived things that when I've been teaching in a co-ed environment, we can develop some quite rich conversations, but they're often dominated by the female voices or the female identifying voices in the classroom. Whereas in majority male classrooms, I find that there's just as rich a conversation, but boys get more of a voice in that. Like there's such a tangent we could take there, right? In talking about the space that gender holds in the classroom. Oh, like yeah. there's so much um 
necessary space that we are giving to conversations around feminism and women holding more space and being badass bitches. And I make mm. no apology for that language. But I wonder in how many co-ed classrooms, talkative, vivacious women are are holding space more than men. I think mm. that the silencing effect is to do with a lot of our uh, unhealthy stereotypes and preconceptions about our gender and I think yeah. those things do interfere with the conversation we might want to have about a poem you know I think mm -hmm. I think students trying to maintain an image about themselves that they feel they need to maintain stops them from engaging in that conversation because mm -hmm. I'm confident that you read a poem and it strikes something with a student they will have an emotional response but whether they have the courage to share that is I guess the, the reason I asked you the question like I've had a lot of success eliciting emotional responses in a female environment when I've been teaching all girls. And I've gone from that now into a co-ed environment at Albany Senior. And it's not only co-ed, but it's also, it's not single cell. So it's an open learning environment. And and so the whole dynamic has shifted slightly. And, and of course, moving into that environment means that the teaching practice has gone less whole class to more individual so I can't say how teaching poetry and eliciting an emotional response is highly effective in the environment that I'm in now uh, I know what it looks like where I was but I'm I'm still figuring out what that looks like in the environment where I am I'm certainly in total alignment with the principle of emotions first have an affective response to the text before you start to try and analyze and, and deconstruct it we will talk about my love of the deconstruction of texts because unlike the authors it's the center of, a, of what we do and I'm all for it like I've got no resistance to the notion of pulling a poem apart and I really don't care whether it's what the author intended or not as long as we see meaning in it I struggle with how the unfamiliar text questions at level one in particular are written because it starts first and this is a personal thing so this is not representing anyone other than myself but when the question starts first with identify a language feature and talk about the effect and then it goes deeper when you listen to a song when you read a text you don't first see oh my gosh there is this amazing extended metaphor you're thinking what is happening in my gut and that's making me think about my own experience of a child and you work backwards from that and then you have the moment of like holy shit it's a metaphor that's working to make me think that so I always work in the reverse and I think um, Tusiata Avia who was uh, chatting to Laura Borodale last night on the Facebook live she was talking about her work with students and how easily intimidated students become when it comes to writing text. And so this is, it was interesting to hear an author talking about not only the analysis of her own text, but students going through that process of writing her own. And she was saying in her work with kids, she always starts sort of with the, with the bodily, the deep experience of emotion within the body, and then using that as a tool to make sense of language and then to use language to express that. And I think also what we get if we use some kind of method in that domain is the opportunity to explore with the students the notion that you might have a fragmented response to a text and that it can be quite different to someone else's response and that all those responses have validity and that we're looking when we're analysing texts 
both at our own response and also exploring potential responses as total contradiction to the direction that our conversation has gone so far. Another approach that I've enjoyed is the complete opposite, almost technocratic response of looking at the poem in relation to known forms like for example, language effects or poetic structures, sonnet structures and things like that, applying a basis of knowledge about the typical intended effects of those kinds of features. Like if you can find a metaphor or if you see a rhyming couplet or if you notice a volta, then you can anticipate that the poem is either going to be using those for a for quite a defined set of purposes or it's going to be undermining those for some reason. And actually, sometimes the technical knowledge gives students confidence, like just knowing that they can say something with some kind of authority about some of the techniques in the poem actually can be a really useful starting point to them taking ownership of the poem. See, I don't do, I, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting because it's, it's really different to my own practice. That actually pushes this conversation in the direction of something that I've become obsessed by, which is focusing on things like form and genre, defining a genre in terms of the features you'd expect to see in that genre. And then also thinking about in that genre, the kind of ideas that emerge. And of course, a lot of genre emerges in relation to philosophical inquiry. So a kind of a a postmodernist genre or a dystopian genre not only has a set of kind of identifiable features, but it has purpose. And And the depth comes from linking the use of those effects with the ideas that they are designed to convey. So a person might use a lot of neologisms because they're trying to create a interference with what we perceive to be reality. Or a person might, in the satire genre, they're often trying to undermine the they're trying to produce a dual set of meanings, either the surface and then the underlying meaning, and and, and they're trying to create binaries and opposites. And, and by doing that, they're using particular language techniques to do so. So there's sort of, it's not just, you know, hunt and peck, find a language effect and then name it. It's actually saying this group of language effects is employed by uh, creators in order to force the reader or viewer or listener to think in this way. But when you're teaching that, you know, because we're talk- talking about two, not, well, they're, t- they're two separate, but it's kind of dichotomous, perhaps, I don't know, two separate but very interwoven things where we're talking about the mechanism and the, and the tech technicality of something but also the more thematic the deeper meaning of of things when you're teaching something like let's say a dystopian genre do you start first with the genre and um and the thematic stuff and the contextual stuff and then move into the more language specific things or so we do it more as an inquiry process so first of all we sort of sharpen the tools by and i very explicitly teach a set of stylistic features that are typical of the genre so that we have a shared language in that and we know what they are and how do you how do you make that interesting i guess by keeping the teaching of those individual features in the context of a piece of writing which has inherent value. So it, I, I never just teach tense, but there might be a really interesting exercise that we could do around shifting the tense of a text from the present to the past and then exploring the difference that makes to the meaning of that text. So or, is there is there a text in every single one of your lessons? Uh, yes. 
Wow. But it could be a fragment of the main text. It doesn't have to be a separate or different text, but it, it sort of all originates with the text. How do you keep it from, how do you prevent that from being boring? Because that could be mind numbing. Could it? How much do you have to play into your own persona with teaching? Because mm. for me, if I were teaching tense within the context of a short text that then played out in a larger text, I could have lessons where I'm like, oh, I just want to swear so much. I guess the question I'm thinking about is how much how much attention do we have to pay to what we are good at in the classroom and allow that to be our gift? I think as teachers, especially in the New Zealand context, we've been empowered to pursue and develop our expertise and our interests as teachers and that we we deliver from that position. So it's very likely that any group of teachers at any given moment in time are going to have quite a different set of approaches to the same task. And I just hope that people actually feel passionate about whatever it is that they feel passionate about and have the confidence and support to be able to, to find their way with a text through their own strengths and are not kind of bashed into this model of what an English teacher should look like. That's right. So that would be my answer to your question, why don't they get bored, is because I find that work really interesting. I know how to show students how interesting it is. And one of the things that they gain from it is this expertise, which and that confidence is the hinge upon which we start to do that really advanced uh, genre-based analysis. Of course, we do end up getting to looking at the big picture, but it's really beautiful to me to be able to see a student make a connection between a philosophical idea and a sentence structure and say that this sentence structure reflects this philosophy because, and the elegance of that is is something the kids love. Like they love what they're learning and they love what they know. And I think that's where their enjoyment comes from is the satisfaction of having this quite specialist knowledge. Yeah. When you can, uh, when you can articulate that, you've nailed it. Like that's so satisfying as a student to say, this is what is happening in this language. This is how I know that it's working. This is the idea it's linking to. This is why this idea matters. Boom, mic drop. Yeah. And there are many ways to get there. Mm. I think more typically they're going to follow an approach that's probably more akin to yours where it's about looking at the big ideas, looking at the social context, looking at the... um, the kind of intentions of the text and what and what purpose it plays in society and then finding ways that the language and the techniques mm. are actually supporting that yeah. that objective. I, I totally get that mm. and, it, and I see the logic in it, but it, it hasn't really been my approach. Mm. It's just n- typically not what I do. Do you reckon that approach would work in an open learning environment? Well, I think the thing that I would say um, often blows students' minds and I think works in multidisciplinary environments well is that when you start to define a genre in terms of its style Mm. features, you uncover this goldmine of intertextuality and you notice that these features appear in other texts that are trying to do the same thing that these texts are doing. And you start to realise that there's this almost hidden web of connections between texts that are technical do you have to know all of those texts though like that sounds so cool but also so intimidating because i'm like yes i want to do that but i don't know all of the texts like what do you need to know before you embark on a on a practice that instead of being thematic i don't think it's any more intimidating than than trying to find a group of texts that are coordinated by theme 
the NZATE podcast has a new department. We have a correspondent, Caitlin, who's NZATE's communications officer, who's calling in from NZATE's head office to tell us what's up with the organization. So it's been summer. What's up with NZATE, Caitlin? Well, thankfully, we do also have closing dates. So we've been nice and relaxed up until the 20th. uh, And now we're getting back into the swing of things, getting really excited for what 2022 has to offer. Is there anything that's on your mind right now that you think people should know about what's happening in the world of English teaching? Absolutely. We are doing some really awesome interviews with different authors on our Facebook page. A lot of those are recorded, so you can watch them whenever you'd like. We also still have up some of our end-of-year seminars that we did. So one of them was with Jane Dewar looking at writing um, and Melinda Weber looking at the MANA model. So both really good things to get your head around as you come into this great new school year. If people are looking to find those, where do they go? They just need to type in Enzate on Facebook and they'll find us. And looking a bit further ahead, what's 2022 going to hold for NZATE? One of the things we're really looking forward to is our uh, professional learning. One uh, we're looking at this year is we are working on the writing standards. Uh, We are looking specifically at how language is used. And we're going to support teachers with figuring out how to introduce that in the junior school so that way the senior students get success from day one, rather than having to muddle through for a year or two. So exciting. I love the writing aspect of what we do. I um, was part of some of last year's NZATE professional learning, and it was around program development. And it was just such an exciting thing to be amongst other English teachers looking towards the changes that are coming down the line and seeing how driven and motivated and inspired everyone was. They're such great sessions, aren't they? And I'm so glad you brought that up because one thing we're going to be doing early this year is doing a review of that. Since COVID made it so that a lot of the sessions, even the ones you were running, were cancelled, we're trying to make sure that the Kaiko across the country still have access to that. So we're going to do one rollout in one in Auckland, one in Christchurch, one in Wellington. So anyone who didn't get to go but was really hoping to, we can hopefully get them involved and they can feel prepared and ready and included because it was really cool. It was, wasn't it? It's such a great thing to go back to basics and think about the whole purpose of what we do. If people want to find out about those, they go to the NZATE website. Is that Yes, right? they can go to the website. I'll also be sending out a newsletter on February 1st. And I should ask, since you're in the uh, head office, what are things like up there at the moment? How was the summer? Oh, the summer was gorgeous. You know, a good mix of rain and sun, lots of books that were flying off the shelves into our brains. Loved it. Did you have a book in particular that you loved? Yes, I actually, I hadn't read Away until this summer and Ah. it was harrowing but beautiful. I was one of the very rare people that read it in a day because I just couldn't stop. Wow. Isn't it nice to actually have a whole day where you can read a book? Yes, (laughs) yes. I read um, Greta and Valden, which was not harrowing at all. And I loved it. It's so so good. (laughs) Yeah, I read it during the really long lockdown starting in August. Uh, And I, because even though head office is uh, New Zealand wide, um, I am located in uh, Tamaki Makoto, right beside K Road. So for a lot of the story, I was just sitting here being like, I know I can't leave my house, but I feel like I am. I think one of the brilliant things about that is uh, I remember teaching 
having great expectations in central London. And it's that same experience of being physically located in the place that the book is set. There's something really special about that. And it's so good that we've got literature in New Zealand that's doing that for us. Well, wonderful. Great to meet you. Thank you. We look forward to having you each time telling us what's up with NZATE. And um, we'll see you two weeks time. Sounds great. Happy to be here. You've edited and written numerous collections of short stories. You've written novels and poems. Um, You've won numerous awards and became officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2000, companion of the New New Zealand Order of Merit in 2012, and in 2013, you were awarded the Prime Minister's um, Award for Literary Achievement, which is amazing. Um, I first came across your work um, when I was at university and at Canterbury University studying New Zealand literature. And, and I think looking back, I found it really disconcerting that I did not discover your work earlier. Uh And over the 23 years that I've been teaching, I've ensured that my students are exposed to what I consider to be the brilliance of your work. Um, And I guess that leads me into my first question for you, because one of the things I love about teaching your stories particularly is that there's something for for any kid. Um, So what do you think it is about your writing that draws in young people and, and adults alike? Well, good afternoon, Pip, and thank you for having me on the podcast. It's uh, very happy to be involved. Uh, First of all, I'd say that presumably uh, youngsters have a sense of recognition with the common experience. Most of my stories are are set in New Zealand. Uh, Many of them are concerned with growing up here. So I suppose there is that that sense of recognition for New Zealand youngsters when they come to read stories set set in their own own country. Uh, Also, I hope that there's a variety in my work. Uh, Some of them are sort of uh, revelations of uh, rather grim aspects of society, but there are also humorous stories and there are satirical stories. Uh, and I hope that that variety gives some spice to 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 the reading of it. And perhaps uh, the third thing I would say is that I do try to achieve some emotional power in the writing so that the reader goes away with something to ponder on, something to think about, perhaps some questions, uh, not not just an entertainment. Yeah, it's interesting because I think every time I've I've read one of your stories to my kids, there's always just this absolute silence at the end of it and it doesn't actually matter what story it is because you know I have a couple that are my favorites and I usually tend towards the macabre um but it's just that that absolute almost shock that they sit in which I I love in terms of you know now you've developed a huge body of work and there are a decent number of collections of your stories including the author's cut which was released last year and um, and one of your stories coming home in the dark was made into a film which was released last year as well how do you think your work's changed or developed over your career and and have the inspirations for your stories changed in any way Well, I've been writing for a long time now, and so naturally, as I have changed and life has changed, uh, my writing has changed. I hope it's developed and perhaps uh, increased in complexity. Um, And I suppose uh, one of the things that's happened is that I've had a greater life experience, and that Mm -hmm. has... um, 
enabled me perhaps to go to different areas in my writing that I, that I wasn't able to go as a young man. I didn't go overseas, for example, until I was uh, in, really in my, well, for a long time, until I was in my 50s. Uh, and then I was very fortunate enough to have the Catherine Mansfield uh, Fellowship in uh, Monton, France, for example, and, and trips to uh, Antarctica and uh, China and other places. So one of the things that's happened is that the settings of my stories mm. um, have certainly changed. And I've got a, a greater breadth for settings and also a greater breadth, I think, in, the, in different peoples in different countries. So... That's part, I think, of the maturity of my writing. Also, I'm now a father and a grandfather, and so I also have those experiences to draw on in my writing. Mm. And I think life experience is, is so valuable in writing. The, the, the more you have in the reservoir of your own experience the more you can draw on to give sort of depth and authenticity to your writing. I would also say that my experience within the wider New Zealand uh, sector of literature has been significant too. I've, uh, I've been able to uh, come into contact with a lot more of my writing colleagues in New Zealand through, for example, being on the uh, Arts Board of Creative New Zealand and, and being on the board of the, uh, of the New Zealand Book Council. And these sort of things, again, give you a sort of a greater range uh, that you can employ in your work. Mm. I just building on that a bit. I think Owen. I just wonder with 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 our kids because often our students will write a piece, and there's almost this um, distaste almost when they go back and look at something that they've written. Maybe even for for young people a few months ago. How do you maybe overcome or sort of combat you know something that you've looked at and and it's you feel a bit cringy about it? Is do you get that feeling or? Often when I look at my earlier work, I know that I would do it differently now. Mm. But I resist the temptation to go back and change them because they are products of the way that I was then and the way I saw the world then. So I leave them. If I want to write other stories with, with different viewpoints, I will. But they are the product of the writer that I was then, and I think I leave them as they are building on the idea around how your work's developed and changed, like what social commentaries interest you most? And like, for instance, like my kids, because I, I often will give a student stories and I, I don't discuss what I consider to be the themes um, with them. I, I think it's really important that they pull their own stuff out. Um, but, you know, they make some really interesting points about, you know, typical Kiwi male, class commentaries, relation di relationship dynamics. Do you consciously explore those issues? Sometimes I do. More often I come to them through my exploration of character. Mm. For me, a character is the essential and fundamental aspect of fiction writing. People are the most important things in our lives. First of all, our, ourselves. After all, we're, we're the centre of the universe as far as we're concerned. That's the way our psyche works. Then the people closest to us, the people we love, our family, and so on and so on in expanding um, circles. And so if people 
are the most important things in our lives. It's no wonder that readers come to literature, they come to stories and novels looking for the people. They're programmed to look for the people. And that's a tremendous advantage for the writer. And so I, I, I'm really looking for characters. And I think if the writer can create people, can make people rise from the page, uh, then uh, you're, you're halfway on the way to success as a writer. You may have many other um, qualities and skills as a writer, but if you can't create people, I don't think you're going to succeed very, very well. When you look at that, when you're creating those characters or those people, like, do you have a particular sort of person in mind or do you just have an aspect or is there like, actually, I'm creating this from the ether sort of thing? Well, characters are, uh, characters are often a, a, an amalgam of, of aspects of people that you've met in your real life, yeah. met in real life. And so you take an element of personality here, an aspect of, of physical appearance there, and you create the character that you mm. want. Um, when I started writing, I think I had the idea that, that there was a room called fiction where everything was made up, and there was a room called fact, which was where real life was. Mm. And the more I wrote, the more I realised that, in fact, Fiction uses everything or can use everything of real life plus the imaginative uh, elements. And so that's one reason, I think, why most fiction writers keep, keep a notebook, keep a journal of some sort, where they're recording their impressions of people around them and activities around them and what's happening in their society. And that, in one way or another, goes through the process of fiction and it's added to, corrupted, combined, uh, meld uh, in, in, into part of, the, part of the story. It goes through the process of fiction. There'd be, like, I think, you know, I'm putting my English teacher hat on. I think that would be such a funky little exercise, even for a week, to sort of just take a, a journal and just observe people and just jot down little bits and pieces. Like, even, you know, oh, that person has this mannerism. I'm sure when kids describe me, if I let them, they do the whole Miss Tunning talks with their hands far too much and needs to calm down with it. Um, but I quite, I really love that sort of concept of actually taking what you do and taking it into a classroom. I suppose writers writers are listeners and they're observers. And I think often the writer isn't the person right at the centre of the group, the raconteur, the people telling the jokes or enthralling other people. Often the writer is one step back, watching, listening, questioning others and so on, uh, and absorbing a lot of that, which can later be used in writing. I love that. Um, interesting, building on that further because, you know, I often, and I think my kids often, find your, find your characters so engaging. It's really easy to be like, I really love that character or like, oh, that, that character there just makes me feel a bit bleh. Um Which characters or type of specific characters do you have the most fun creating? Um, and do you see any of them reflecting different stereotypes in New Zealand or, or society in general, actually, because you have mentioned about going further afield than, than New Zealand? Yes. Uh, well, perhaps the first thing I'd say in common with many writers 
it's often easier to deal with a nasty character than it is with a with a pleasant character. Often it's easier to zero in on attributes which are which are uh, are not pleasant rather than to bring the goodness of someone out. Uh, and so I think that's that's an interesting aspect of characterization. Also, because my life has largely been spent in provincial centres in New Zealand, I'm particularly interested in provincial lifestyles. In I'm I'm a regional writer, and I'm not I'm not um, embarrassed to say that, or, or and I'm I'm proud to be a regional writer. Um, I have increasingly written about cities, particularly overseas, but a lot of my work is spent in revealing and, and, and discussing and elevating, hopefully, and celebrating the provincial Kiwi lifestyle. Mm. How, do you, how do you think that's maybe all your view or whether, in fact, that has changed? Because I would argue, you know, because I live in Te Puke, um, which is quite a, a small town with Kiwi fruit everywhere, but, but how do you think provincial New Zealand's changed and how have you sort of maybe changed how you've written about it or if in fact you have I think it has changed a great deal we are now a far more urbanized society than when I than than when I was a boy and I'm sure that that when young people today read my stories of boyhood that in many cases they think well it's not like that mm. now it's different when I was a boy, almost everyone had an uncle or an auntie or a grandfather who was on a farm and they would go there on the holidays and so forth and so on. I think many people now, their complete upbringing is urban and they probably have very little experience of the provincial lifestyle. So it's New Zealand has changed quite dramatically in that respect, mm. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, I don't know whether you want to, I think, you know, in terms of like looking around setting, how do you go through the process of developing a, a particular setting? Like, because you do this really, um, like my my two favourite stories of yours, I love the role of Jenny Penn. If a kid's struggling with it, with finding a text to read, I'm like, here, read this. Um, and they love it. And I guess that, that sort of microcosm, but how do you go about developing how you're going to make that setting something that people can relate to? For me, um, settings are important. They're important to me as a reader and they're important to me as a writer. I'm, I'm a visual writer and so settings uh, are particularly significant. I like to show where my characters are uh, as well as who they are. And in fact, the two, the two are related because people affect their surroundings and the surroundings affect the, the mm. people. The, the, in particular, the Lower South Island is, has been my beat, particularly Central Otago and, and South Canterbury and so on. So I often use the familiar settings of the Lower South Island. But I, I, I also enjoy having very different settings um, Quite a few of my later stories have been set overseas because of time that I've been fortunate enough to spend in Italy and France and other places. So I, I enjoy dealing with settings. I, I like to think that I can create a visual setting that the reader can step mm. into uh, and, and, and where, the, where, where there's, some, there's something around the characters. They're not just standing in isolation and talking. 
Yeah. I just, you know, I was thinking about that because a lot of um, – you're right in terms of your visual settings. I, I, as a reader, I, I read your stories and I'm like, actually, I, I can picture that so completely in my head. And I sort of look there and I think there's always hints for me about things that are coming. So I think, you know, looking and reading your stories, there's always this little bit of foreshadowing. Is that deliberate? Uh, well, of course, you can use settings mm. uh, almost as as um, delineations of themes, we all know that you know the business of Dracula's castle. There's always lightning flashing and wolves racing through the the trees and so on. So you you can use uh, settings to develop moods uh, and which relate to the to what's going on in the characters' minds or in their lives mm. and so on. And that's one of the things that you do with setting. Sometimes you like to take a setting and to have it in contradiction. To, to what is happening in the lives of the characters. So you may have a, an idyllic seaside setting in which something awful happens, and, it, and, and that gives it greater impact, I think. If you were to go into a classroom tomorrow, and you are welcome into any of my classrooms, Owen, I can assure you, which, would have, which one of your works or which of your works would you love to look at with students and why? Well, I think I would choose... A story of boyhood because that's closer to their own experience even though as we say not everyone's had a, a, a provincial upbringing these days but but they can I think relate to that even so mm. it's 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 closer to to their age group um, and, and it might depend on how old they were I, I would choose a different story for a seventh form as I would call it or year 13 now uh, as uh, than than I would for a junior form. What's it like seeing one of your stories as a film? How did how was that for you? It's interesting because quite often writers get approached uh, by by filmmakers and screen screenwriters who take an option on their work, and I've had that happen quite often. Nine times out of ten, nothing happens in the end because filmmaking is such an expensive business. So the people take your novel or they take your story, they develop it and they make them up with a very good screenplay, but then suddenly they're faced with finding millions of dollars to turn it into a film. So usually that's as far as it goes. I've had one story made into a short film, but this recent one, um, Coming Home in the Dark, which made into a feature film, was the first full-length film that I had made of my work. And I, I, I very much enjoyed that. And, and I thought a, a good job was, was made of it. James Ashcroft is the New Zealand um, director and, and also co-writer. And the, the, um, the, the film had a lot more built into it than just my story because the, the short story wasn't sufficient in itself for a full-length film. So James and Eli Kent, his co-writer, uh, put a, quite a lot of background material into it as well so it would support a full-length film. And it's done very well. It was at the Sundance Film Festival and, uh, and now it's on Netflix. And in fact, James has been... Uh, offered a, uh, an important directoral and writing role by an American, big American film company to work on a, an American novel. And I think that's great. New Zealand um, 
film directors and film writers seem to be doing very well at the moment, and that's mm. great. It is actually, it's awesome, isn't it? They do such mm. a interesting job of sort of taking what I would argue is a Kiwi psyche and putting it onto a screen at times. Yeah. Um, look, Owen, thank you so incredibly much for your time and thank you for sharing your wisdom. It's been um, an absolute joy to chat with you. Um, so thank you for that. Much appreciated. Do you have anything else coming up in the pipeline that we need to be aware of? Because I'm going to be doing some book buying in the very near future. So you let us know if we need to go and fill out our book rooms. Well, well, first of all, Pip, uh, thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope you can get something useful out of it for the podcast. I have another collection of short fiction coming out towards the end of this year, probably about August or September. So I hope that uh, there are one or two fresh ones in there that people might find interesting. Oh, I'm sure they'll be snapping them up. I know I will be. Well, thank you so much for that. That's appreciated. Thank you. Okay.